0: Well, the listeners should know that my dog Hugo is once again third mic on this episode. He's come to visit the Gore Lieberman Studios, um, come to do an audit. Uh, He'll be chiming in with any thoughts he has as it goes along. Before we get into this further, I mean, you know I've been on a Three Stooges kick lately. I'm always on a Three Stooges kick. I'm never not thinking about the Three Stooges. I want to tell you about a film that I watched this morning, a big favorite of mine growing up. Not a very good one. But um, you know, feel fondly towards it. One of the last Shemp films called "Wham Bam Slam" from 1956. Uh, there's a scene Shemp is ailing in it. He's has a bad cold or flu, and Mo is preparing him a foot bath. That seems like a nice thing to do to a guy, right? <laughs> but what if I told you that Larry is also in the kitchen and he's preparing some live lobsters for dinner? <laughs> Wouldn't it be awful if somehow the lobsters <laughs> fell into the bucket they were using for the foot bath? Anyway, I'll encourage the listeners to look up the film and just find out how that situation resolves itself.
1: What What was the one you showed me yesterday?
0: Well, I showed you... Uh, like a, a few
1: minutes of one of them. A,
0: a film called An Ache in Every Steak, which... Um, <laughs> Has one of my probably top five favorite moments in any comedy film ever, which is the boys are they're they're lugging up this big <laughs> ice box up a giant set of stairs. And a guy comes out of a car holding a cake and he says, ah, I transported this cake safely home. (laughs) And it doesn't, to me, it doesn't even matter what happens next.
1: The the, the conceit of like the scene you've already, the scene has spent like five minutes building itself. The Stooges are taking these big uh, chunks of ice up the stairs, like this big long stairs and by the time they get the, to the top, the ice is always melted. And then they figure out that they can put the ice in, like, a, a cabinet or something, which is somehow supposed to stop it being melted. So this is all building to, like, the three of them are carrying this cabinet full of ice up these really steep stairs. So already and then, the, <laughs>
0: the setup is airtight. Yeah,
1: yeah the, the, the stakes are already pretty high. You're thinking, <laughs> like, all right. Well, surely they're going to drop it or something. And then just out of nowhere, out of the ether, in the span of like a few milliseconds, are introduced to a new character. New character jumps out of a car. Defined (laughs) by his main character trait is that he's holding a big cake. He just says a line that's like, (laughs) like, ah, I made it safely with this cake. (laughs) And uh, I'm sure you can guess what happened next. But, you know... The the line is even funnier than, like, the fact that the cake obviously ends up all over his face. The conceit of having a character get out of a car holding a cake and (laughs) saying the words, Ah, I have made it safely (laughs) with this cake. Maybe one of the funniest things I've ever seen.
0: You know, it's like (laughs) Alfred Hitchcock said, you know, if (laughs) if a bomb goes off just out of nowhere, that's terrifying. But if you show the audience the bomb under the table... And wait for a few minutes. That's suspense. (laughs) Anyway, welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with...
1: Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Well, let me tell you about an absolutely insane piece of legislation out of Florida that I wrote about this week. There's this guy called Jason Broder, who's a state senator in Florida. Uh, I don't know too much about him. He was endorsed by Ron DeSantis in 2018 during his successful bid for the state Senate. He was in the uh, Florida House of Representatives before that. And in a time when Republican states are basically just like laboratories for like the worst legislation, about just about everything uh, you've ever seen. I mean, this one to me takes the cake. Now, I'm going to tell you what this bill is, but I'm going to preface it by uh, just reassuring you all that uh, in this case, I don't think this bill is going to pass. Uh, This guy is just like a doofus. And the reason that I was interested in it, um, which I'll elaborate on in a second, is really just because I think that it says something about sort of the wider wider mindset of Republicans in kind of DeSantis country and uh, certain other states. The bill is SB 1316, an act relating to information dissemination. Now, what this bill proposes to do is basically create a registry of political bloggers in the state. So it doesn't apply to uh, newspapers, but if you have a political blog, it would compel you to register with the state or face very stiff financial penalties if you, if
0: you have a political blog how does one define a political blog
1: <laughs> it's defined in the legislation I mean basically uh, you're not allowed to I mean what the what the goal is is you're not allowed to write about public officials you know it defines uh, elected state officers that's the governor the lieutenant governor a cabinet officer or any member of the legislature're you're not allowed to write about them unless you register. And in registering, disclose like how much money your blog makes. So like, I don't know if you're like a Florida blogger with a Substack and you want to like write about a bill, you have to like register with the state a quote. This is from the text of the bill. If a blogger posts to a blog about an elected state officer and receives or will receive compensation for that post. The blogger must register,
0: and the idea is that this is protecting against fake news, the dissemination of artificial information.
1: Yeah, that's that's part of it. You know, this guy Jason Broder seems to be doing most of the promotion just on his Twitter account. He's you know he's not actually quoted in the media a lot, or at least not that I can find. He told a website or was quoted at the website Florida Politics uh, saying paid bloggers are lobbyists who write instead of talk. They both are professional electioneers. If lobbyists have to register and report, why shouldn't paid bloggers? So I think this is a very interesting example and kind of case study of how easy it is to kind of launder something extremely sinister and draconian in this language of openness and transparency. And, you know, I I looked into this guy, and as you'd expect, he's a free speech guy, you know, he strikes the, you know, rhetorical postures that are very typical of, a state Republican official in a in a place like Florida. Now, as I said, I don't think this bill is going to pass. For some reason, Newt Gingrich, of all people, has come out very strongly against it. Uh, there's an article in the National Review that's called something like, you know, Jason Broder is a a doofus, but he's a solo doofus or something. So parts of the institutional right, they're not keen to own this. And I don't think it's anything like it's going to pass in its current form. And you know, if it did, it would probably be subject to court challenges and all kinds of other stuff.
0: A couple weeks ago, we were talking about these leaked emails from Fox News, talking about their reportage of Donald Trump's election loss people like Tucker Carlson freaking out about well if we report on this we could potentially lose viewers to Newsmax and you know look at the share price the share price is dropping yeah so that's on-air talent worried about the stock price and then you think of all those cases of you know journalists over the years you know TV news anchors who also do like paid speeches for you know oil firms and other oh, yeah. uh, other other alarming organizations and they to, don't
1: have to disclose it i, right. I mean
0: uh, to the extent that this bill has any kernel of truth, or could have any kernel of a uh, popular legitimacy, it's the fact that we all know that that's happening.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge problem on cable news, particularly with any coverage of like, so called national security or defense issues, we have all these people who go on TV and are almost never expected to disclose that, you know, they've they sit on the boards of like defense contractors, you know, they have like an immediate, you know, they are corporate apparatchiks who are being presented as just these kind of neutral experts. And yeah, that is a problem.
0: And just at the substack level, I mean, we all understand that people cultivate audiences. And once they cultivate audiences, they're anxious about alienating that sort of audience. So then, of course, they create, you know, news and journalism that's tailored for that sort of audience. Um, Not not us. We're pure. Uh, we We would never do anything like that. But this is also something that everybody knows and understands. And I guess the ultimate problem, as it always is, is capitalism, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what, what's most interesting
1: to me about something like this is, you know, how it shows yet again, just kind of how thin the rhetorical premise uh, that the right likes to invoke really is when it comes to, yeah, freedom of speech, you know, getting the government off people's backs, that kind of thing. You know, you, you can imagine if there was like a, a blue state where uh, state officials were trying to uh, I don't, create a blogger registry or something, you could. imagine Imagine how like the Ron DeSantis of the world would would react to it. And I don't say this to sort of point out like, oh, uh, yeah, conservatives are actually a little bit hypocritical. You know, they say money, (laughs) they say money is free speech in one instance, and then they want to force bloggers to register, you know, in the next. There is, I think, a deeper underlying coherence here. And, uh, you know, it's a lot more sinister than just like pointing out the hypocrisy or inconsistency on issues like this would suggest. There's another bill which DeSantis is sponsoring. And actually, incidentally, this doofus Jason Broder, who uh, has the blogger bill, uh, is personally sponsoring this other bill in the Florida Senate at the moment. And this one is is truly terrifying. Another, uh, I mean, grotesque threat to free speech. Uh, basically, the goal of this one is to reform defamation law, basically to make it easier for state officials and, and wealthy people to sue journalists, okay, and newspapers. Because as it stands, like many jurisdictions, there are slap laws in place, which are, you know, designed to act as a safeguard against, you know, opportunistic lawsuits. So if you're working as a reporter, you don't have to worry that, you know, you're reporting on like a crooked deal between a developer and a local city councilor. you don't have to worry about the developer silencing you by like trying to mire you in paperwork you know with with lawsuits and that kind of thing this bill would also weaken the working definition of actual malice so you know in US defamation law famously uh, I think this is I don't know if it's unique to the US but we don't have this in Canada Uh, if you're claiming to to have been defamed you actually have to demonstrate that there was an intent to to defame you not just that you know somebody defamed you accidentally now Trevor Tim of the Freedom of the Press Foundation argued argued in The Guardian this week that basically if this bill passed and was realized, I mean, again, there would be a big fight about it in the courts if it did pass. He basically argues this would destroy both mainstream and independent media in Florida. And I mean, you said before, like, is the lesson here just sort of like the problem, you know, the problem with it all is just capitalism. Well, in a sense, I mean, the the goal of all of these really heavy handed right wing bills, you know, many of which are coming out of places like Florida and Texas right now, not just about freedom of the press or or the media, but also all kinds of other things where we find the same inconsistency, like, uh, you know, Tennessee uh, banning drag performances on public property, or, you know, the stuff that's happening in Texas around like preventing academics, you know, forcing academics to face discipline if they teach critical race theory. You know, the the legislation that's been passed in Florida in the form of the Don't Say Gay Bill, this kind of stuff, all of this stuff directly contradicts the right's purported embrace of, you know, individualism, free expression, all that kind of stuff. The deeper coherence here, I think, is just that conservatives have, you know, they have a particular morality, uh, they have a particular view of hierarchy, of like the particular social roles that people are supposed to fill, and they're willing to use the state or the marketplace, whatever institutions, uh, you know, suit them to uh, impose and entrench that vision of hierarchy, however, they're able to. Adam Sewer of The Atlantic wrote in 2021, and I think this is very concisely put, Republicans cannot imagine labor relations as exploitative, except in that someone might have to sit through a tedious video on race or gender sensitivity in the workplace. They do not perceive the concentration of corporate power as perilous unless companies' desire to retain their customer base interferes with Republican schemes to entrench their own political dominance. They see freedom of speech as vital unless it prevents them from using the state to sanction forms of political expression they oppose." Again, I think that's very well put, and I think there's a really important point here about conservatism and right-wing ideology in general. When I studied political science, the way I was taught ideology was that different ideologies can be kind of taxonomized on the basis of these, you know, premises they have that can be pretty neatly delineated, you know, premises about the relationship of, you know, the individual to the rest of society, to the state, the role of the state, the role of the market, whatever it is. Now, that's a very tidy way of understanding political ideology, but I don't think it's ultimately all that helpful. I mean, just to take one example, right, we think about modern conservatism as being so defined by its embrace of the market as this sort of all-encompassing structure that everything else should be subordinated to. And of course, there's a lot of truth to that. On the other hand, you know, if you look at uh, something like the, one of the latest right-wing moral panics, which I think is particularly funny, which is, are you, are you aware of ESG, Will?
0: Uh I am unfamiliar with ESG.
1: Okay, well, this one's funny. Uh, th- this is this is one of those right wing things that I think is very amusing because like they've come up with this like obscure acronym, which like you see it all over right wing Twitter. It's the kind of thing like you'll hear Ron DeSantis talk about, but unless you've consumed like hours of right wing YouTube <laughs> or something, like unless you just have like Newsmax, Fox, and OAN like plugged into your brain every day for like twelve hours a day, you would have no idea what this means. I saw recently, uh, I'm forgetting who it was, but there was some like. Vaguely success win Republican guy that was tweeting last month about, like, he's, he's an anti-Trump guy now. And he was like, uh, while Donald Trump is complaining about Rihanna, Ron DeSantis is taking on ESG, choose your fighter. And it's like, buddy, people know who Rihanna is, okay? <laughs> no one knows what the fuck ESG is. So ESG uh, to enlighten you all stands for environmental and social governance, and this is the latest Aristotle's class politics. The right has picked up where you know you can get really mad at BlackRock and you know uh, other companies on Wall Street. You know not because they're on Wall Street, but because uh, the, the shareholders are woke. They're starting to uh, well allegedly uh, factor in you know environmental concerns and you know other lib shit into you know investment decisions and things like that, and uh, that is undercutting. The the proper functioning of the marketplace because, as we all know, maximizing profit is the only thing that uh, is, you know, is the only thing that matters. And the thing is, I think in most cases, that is what these companies are doing, right? If you're an oil company, for example, just to take an obvious example, you do actually have to think about environmental stuff because you're dealing in a finite resource. So, if you want to maximize your profits, Like these companies aren't thinking about environmental concerns in whatever limited way they are doing that, if at all, uh, because they're like woke or something, because like BlackRock or, you know, Shell or Chevron have become like socially conscious. They're literally still just doing capitalism. But here we see a clear example of the right trying to intrude on the sanctity of private firms, which is supposedly one of their most cherished values. Actually, my girlfriend just chimed in and pointed out that apparently ESG is the... uh, It's official policy of the Chinese Communist Party. So I guess maybe that's animating some of it too. Another example comes to mind here that might be useful. This one has less to do with the market. But you know, in studying American history in university, you know, I was taught that one of the kind of principal schisms uh, at various points was this whole idea of states' rights, which, you know, Uh, The right embraces. And if that's taught a certain way, or if, if, you know, that's uh, kind of discussed a certain way, you know, one could get the impression that, you know, the right actually just believes in localism, it believes in, you know, decentralization, whatever. And of course, that's completely abstracted from like what states' rights has meant in practice, which is like, yeah, we don't want the federal government like desegregating our schools and things like that. So that's ridiculous on its face. But it's so obviously untrue when you look at all kinds of other things like, okay, premise, the federal government shouldn't set, you know, a national minimum wage, because that should be up to the states. It's like, okay, well, then a city council in let's say Oklahoma passes a bylaw, which says that, okay, uh, if you're an employer, and, and you're working in the town, you have to pay $15 an hour. And then the Republican controlled state legislature steps in and says, no, 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 you can't, you can't do that. You can't have a minimum wage law. And and we, this, ca- this higher body, are going to override the local city council. This has happened, by the way, in numerous places. This isn't just something I'm making up. And again, the deeper coherence there is just a belief in hierarchy, right? Don't set minimum wage laws, because minimum wage laws mean workers get paid more money. And it means employers have to spend more of their incomes paying their employees, which is bad. I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with uh, Corey Robbins' book, The Reactionary Mind, I was recently looking at, I think for the first time properly, the second edition of that, which if people haven't seen, is uh, very worth reading. It can be useful, I think, to a limited degree anyway, to point out contradictions in, you know, the right says one thing and it does another. But as Robin illustrates, I think, quite brilliantly in The Reactionary Mind, there is a much deeper coherence here and a much scarier one, which is just an abiding belief in hierarchy and a willingness, very kind of dexterous willingness, to embrace different means to impose, reinforce, and reify hierarchy by any means necessary.
0: (laughs) Our movie on this episode is Woman in the Dunes from 1964, directed by Hiroshi Teshigahara, written by Kobo Abe and based on his novel. Our superdelegate Patreon tier voted for us to discuss this movie. Uh, By the way, uh, we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash Michael and us five Yankee dollars a month extra episode every week. Recent episodes have encompassed topics as varied as Dwayne the Rock Johnson in Black Adam <laughs> and the recent earth-shattering Vanderpump Rules scandal.
1: And uh, turning back to this week's film, I was starting to get anxious when uh, Good Burger made the runoff. <laughs> uh, I did see Good Burger when it came out, and like, I don't know, maybe we'd have fun discussing it. Maybe we will discuss it. But in the end, there was a clear victory for 1964's Woman in the Dunes.
0: I was very uh, proud of our of our patrons. Truly, I mean yeah.
1: thank you well one of the most uh, extraordinary films i've ever seen and something i feel very grateful to have watched
0: well i feel very ashamed because i come to this podcast as the film guy of the duo and yet i had never seen this movie before which is one of that crop of movies those international art house successes of the early 1960s movies like Antonioni's L'Aventura, Alain René's Hiroshima Mon Moore, movies that were cryptic and mysterious and invited debate and interpretation all around the world, movies that were distinctly post-war, post-Holocaust, post-atomic bomb, and seemed to be pushing cinema into new realms of expressiveness. And at the risk of sounding like Professor Mort Rifkin, I do sometimes wish we could go back. By the way, um, on the Important Cinema Club podcast... We did... Yeah,
1: that's Will's other podcast, by the way. He's sneaking an advertisement into Michael and us here. Uh,
0: well, I do want to say that we recently did a Japan Month, and we talked about four Japanese filmmakers, all of whom I thought were wildly different, you know, spanning 50 years, many different kinds of genres.
1: Who did you talk about?
0: Mikio Narusa, Hideo Gosha, who made a lot of samurai films, uh, Hisayasu Saito, who specialized in uh, softcore erotic erotica and the anime filmmaker masaki yuasa and you know i thought these were all very different but of course all of them were interested in the clash between tradition and modernity and most of them were also very interested in sex so uh not to paint a national cinema with too broad a brush but these are some very pressing post-world war ii japanese concerns and they're certainly present here why don't we begin by synopsizing the plot Uh, This movie is as much about mood as it is about plot. I'm sure many of the film's ideas will emerge as we talk about what happens in it. The story involves a schoolteacher and amateur entomologist whose name we don't find out until the end of the movie, but his name is Nikki Junpei. For the most part, he's just, you know, the man. We first encounter him when he's on a amateur expedition in a desert area looking for a new kind of beetle. As we learn, he's eager to make a discovery so he can have his name immortalized in the official record books. Before that, actually, though, the opening minutes even the opening seconds of the movie establish the film's very strange mood it opens after the credits with several microscopic close-ups of individual grains of sand it takes a moment to recognize exactly what we're seeing And then throughout are many incredible shots of the sand dunes. Many images of sand being manipulated by the wind. Oftentimes there will be compositions. It's much better to see this than to hear me describe it. But oftentimes within one composition, part of the sand dune will be completely still, but another part will be moving in the wind as if like a river flow. Oftentimes, as you mentioned while we were watching, it's like visual ASMR. Mm -hmm. But in that early scene, when he's talking about why he's exploring When he's talking about his motivations, he delivers probably the most important monologue in the film, which I'll quote... He says, the certificates we use to make certain of one another contracts, licenses, ID cards, permits, deeds, certifications, registrations, carry permits, union cards, testimonials, bills, IOUs, temporary permits, letters of consent, income statements, certificates of custody, even proof of pedigree is that all of them? Have I forgotten any? Men and women are slaves to their fear of being cheated. In turn, they dream up new certificates to prove their innocence no one can say where it will end. They all seem endless.
1: Yeah, when that appeared on screen, uh, I had no idea what it meant or what its role in the film was going to be, but I instantly recognized that it was going to be important. So the etymologist is in the dunes, and he meets some villagers who tell him that, uh, you know, he's missed his last bus back to whatever city he's from, and they offer to put him up for a night. He's then led to a a very strange uh, location. We never see, you know, the village, even though it's referred to numerous times. Uh, what we do see is the setting in which virtually the entire film takes place. Uh, we first see it in establishing shots from above. It's a house in a kind of sand pit surrounded by dunes uh, that you can only access uh, through a rope ladder. Now, in reality, gahara he admitted that he he could never get the du- sand. Sand doesn't actually look like this. You can't actually get it. It doesn't actually take the form that you see in the film, where it's like these towering cliffs around the house and the pit. Apparently, he could never get the sand to be at anything sharper than a 30 degree angle but because of the way he shoots it uh, it really does look like uh, there's no escape from the pit there's no way to get in and out except via this rope ladder
0: and by the way these early scenes him in the desert up to and including when he finally descends into this dune visually establish the idea that this man is eager to bring order to the natural world to index it to taxonomize it And the natural world is unpredictable and untamable. You know, you see these compositions where the sand is moving. These compositions that almost seem like at war with themselves over the way the sand is moving. These early scenes also establish the visual texture of the movie. The camera can get as close as it wants. Everything is coated in a mix of sand and sweat. And there's a strong erotic potency to that mixture.
1: Yeah, now apparently Teshigahara was a a potter at one point. He was a kind of multifaceted artist. He did all kinds of things. And I think this is probably the source for kind of the tactile quality of the film. Uh, It is the most tactile film I think I've ever seen, if that makes sense. It is visually obsessed with surface and texture, which are aesthetic elements, but are, uh, as, as we'll come to, I'm sure, thematic elements as well.
0: So when he is lowered on a rope ladder down to this humble shack at the bottom of the dune, he encounters a nameless widow who lives there. Her husband and child were apparently swallowed by a sandstorm the previous year. And in fact, her house appears to be under constant threat of being buried by the sand. The roof is often buckling under the weight of the sand.
1: The sand is kind of uh, overrunning the house. Like a lot of the ground in the house is just sand.
0: She's constantly going out to show shovel the sand into buckets that the locals reel up. And by the way, shoveling the sand and giving it to the locals is her livelihood, it's sold to cement makers, um, apparently catastrophically. Apparently it, it makes for very poor cement in the outside world, but nevertheless, it's sold that way. And in exchange, she gets food and water. Just these plot details should indicate that the images that we're seeing do not play out as strictly literal.
1: The basic arc of the film uh, begins to take shape virtually as soon as uh, he goes down into the pit. At night, he finds the woman outside of the hut, you know, shoveling sand, and he, he offers to help, and she says uh, very cryptically and, and somewhat ominously, well, it's okay, it's it's only the first night, so, you know, that's, that's <laughs> fine, I don't need your help tonight, you know, and he's kind of, he kind of laughs it off, and he's like, oh, well, you know, I'm only going to be here for one night, but whatever. Now, the rest of the film is basically a chamber play, which takes place entirely in and around this shack gradually and enigmatically we are introduced to the reality that he's not going to be allowed to leave the pit. They're not going to extend the rope ladder to him. There's no way for him to actually, you know, climb out of the pit. He tries various, you know, he tries to use science. He tries to use reason uh, to to escape the pit in various ways. None of it works.
0: And further, the villagers who are often poking their heads up from above the pit are shifting his identity for him. They start by calling him teacher, then they call him helper, and then eventually they call him husband. Throughout the
1: course of the film, the relationship between the man and the woman, and we're calling them that because that is how they're referred to uh, throughout most of the film. That is how we know them. Their relationship develops uh, eventually into a sexual one. Now this is an endlessly uh, ambiguous film and to just give you one example that I thought was particularly striking there's a scene where the man is kind of pontificating and kind of uh, you know complaining about the whole business of shoveling the sand every night you know there's a a clear analog to the myth of Sisyphus here they keep shoveling the sand and the sand keeps encroaching however we situate the sand and its wider thematic meaning in the film it clearly represents something that is beyond the control of individual human beings
0: Is it the uh inescapable march of progress <laughs> is it the <laughs> Irreversible movement of modernity, perhaps? I want to
1: come back to that in a second. But so the man is complaining about, you know, the business of the sand. And he says, this is futile. If it wanted to, the sand could swallow up cities and even entire countries. Did you know that? A Roman town called Sabrata and the one in the Rubaiyat of Oman Kayyam, both completely buried under particles an eighth of a millimeter wide. You can't fight it. It's hopeless. Now, that monologue is followed a a few minutes later by the consummation of their sex relationship. Now, I think it was at this point in the film, and by the way, I'm not even going to try to interpret that scene right now, but it was at this point in the film that I felt like I started to uh, understand what was going on. If you if you're seeing this film for the first time, I would say there's a good like 30 minutes or more where it's really unclear, you know, what exactly is going on and what you're seeing and how you're meant to receive everything that you're seeing. But it was at this point I started formulating, you know, uh, a, a fairly derivative kind of uh, take on the film which is, "Oh, I get it. The sand rep- presents, as you just said, you know, the ineluctable march of, uh, you know, progress and modernity. And this is a film which is, you know, partaking in that very uh, post-war Japanese cinema uh, kind of concern about the relationship between uh, tradition and modernity or something like that. And perhaps, uh, you know, as in the films of Yashijiro Ozu, which we've discussed many times on the show, you know, it's going to have some kind of tragic conclusion about that. Now, I definitely think the film invites readings that are uh, at least in the vicinity of that. I mean, right from the get-go, when you hear the first sounds in the movie the movie opens with these very urban noises, you know, the horns honking and the sound of trains and things like that, uh, which then kind of fade into more traditional music uh, involving drums and things like that. The film does sort of initially at least seem to invite that reading. For about the first half of it, I was thinking about it entirely in terms of these binary oppositions, you know, modernity versus tradition, you know, science versus nature, you know, the etymologist kind of uh, obsession with taxonomizing things and, uh, you know, imposing order on the world versus nature, which is unknowable and chaotic. You know, I thought about the sexual relationship in the film and the way that it appears to set up an opposition between kind of propriety and, and carnality, if you want. There's the you know coarseness of the sand versus the purity of the water that you constantly see, and also skin. There are a lot of shots of both of their bodies, you know, naked with flecks of sand on them and things like that. There's another apparent opposition between you know formalization and officialdom. So the things that he's talking about in that opening monologue when he's first in the dunes, ID cards, you know, uh, things like that. The, the the regimentation and officialization of modern life those seem to be kind of counterposed with the self and with personal identity, things like that. The thing is, though, uh, the film, I think, steadily erodes the barriers between all of these things. And I don't really know how to make sense of the ending at all except by observing that the types of oppositions I just set up uh, appear to collapse and erode throughout the film and become symbiotic and interdependent. And I don't think I'll be able to offer a definitive interpretation of the film, but I do think that is kind of the the, the principal source of its power and beauty.
0: Well, I think the film consciously resists a definitive interpretation. Uh, It has been interpreted in many different ways over the years. Uh, Every piece of criticism about the movie includes the word parable. (laughs) I'll quote from two interesting interpretations. Uh, One is by the great American historian, Arthur (laughs) Schlesinger Jr.
1: Uh, When when we discovered this, I thought like this must be a joke or a mistake, but apparently Arthur Schlesinger, who was... You know, he was like a sort of Cold War guy. He was like, I think, the, basically... The court historian yeah, of various presidents. Of, yeah, like the Kennedy White House and stuff. And apparently he was on the grand jury at Cannes in 1964, or I think so. And uh, yeah, he was not a fan of Woman of the Dunes. Why don't you tell us what he thought about
0: yeah, it? Yeah, apparently he was a, a film critic for a time as well <laughs> in the midst of all of this. We we discovered this in the video essay by James Quant that accompanies the Criterion Blu-ray release. Uh, he called the film a piece of Japanese cathodic a society existentialism phony through and through Uh, he goes on to write that it's a faux primitive film in which knowing people condescend to the simple aborigines and use them to score points against the civilization which they would never think of abandoning themselves. Its ultimate philosophy, followed to its conclusion, is the philosophy of totalitarianism for the film tells us that a man finds himself when he abandons the struggle for freedom and resigns himself to the tyranny of fate, the true freedom, quote unquote, is to be found in capitulation to necessity. So, that, so the guy in the movie, the guy in the movie who begins the movie as a rugged individual, eventually his identity is swallowed up by conformity. He surrenders himself to this community that has abducted him. He is Stockholm syndrome.
1: Yeah, right. In the, in this reading, uh, the woman and also the villagers, you know, impose a new identity. They graft a new identity on him, and in a kind of crude way. I mean, I understand. Where that reading is coming from, because in the final scenes of the film, the man decides to remain in the pit even as the rope ladder is uh is left in place and he actually has the freedom to leave. Because he's a man of science, he uh, he tries to develop a little device, a crude device for capturing crows for food. He and the woman are at the mercy of the villagers who you know variously lower water and food into the pit. As the woman tells us, unless there's a man in the house, they don't bring water. So, you know, the villagers would seem to represent kind of uh, traditional social structures and order and things like that. But the crow capturing device doesn't work. And instead, the man finds that he's actually sort of accidentally invented a well um, and that they're able to draw water up from the sand. And he perfects this technique by conducting a whole bunch of measurements and drawing diagrams and things like that. And for me, we'll come back to Arthur Schlesinger in a minute. Uh, But for me, this is one of the many points, uh, many examples of the kinds of binary oppositions, kind of conceptual and thematic oppositions I mentioned earlier, just breaking down by the end of the film, because in staying in the pit, you know, the etymologist begins to be uh, excited to, you know, share this uh, technique with the villagers. Uh, He wants to stay and hone it further. He's actually not adopting any kind of, you know, primitivist lifestyle or anything like that here. Instead, there's kind of an intermingling of this more isolated and traditional rural existence with reason and empiricism. And again, I don't entirely know what to do with that, but it's just one example of these boundaries. That I was talking about before breaking down Now to come back to the Arthur Schlesinger thing And then I want to hear what the other interpretation you've got is I mean, look, I haven't seen this in context, right? All I, you know, all oh, I, I'm sure
0: it's good in context.
1: <laughs> well, you know, maybe there's more context offered here for this interpretation, but that strikes me as the most like Cold War ass American liberal reading of a film like this. Like Arthur Schlesinger Jr. watched this film and he's like, ah, yes, you see, well, the the sand uh, is a union of these different particulars, these individual grains, and yeah, that's how the unfree cultures of the East. Those
0: were the kamikaze fighters in the Second World War, <laughs> yeah. and they're the marching. <laughs> In China, right now, under Mao.
1: I mean, that basically is where that reading seems to be coming from. I mean, you could just as easily do a, a non sinister version of that reading. You could just as easily not be repelled by the film's various insinuations that, you know, individuals actually exist within community. You know, individuals and identity are actually shaped through relationships with the people around us, with the world around us, with the society around us. There are certain things that are indispensable to them, which are perhaps. Uh, lacking or at least uh, you know severely deficient in modern life you know a sense of place a sense of purpose that kind of thing I feel as if that's almost the same reading except you know without this really weird alarmist Cold War bent where (laughs) yeah uh, Arthur Schlesinger thinks this is a film about totalitarianism because at the end of the film he doesn't leave the pit completely on absurd on its face I hope the other one is uh, is a little better
0: Well, much of the Western criticism of the film in talking about it as a parable has kind of over the years, thrown its hands up in the air and said, well, it could mean anything. It could mean nothing. It's about identity broadly. The Criterion essay, I think, is useful in this case in situating it as a Japanese film. This is an essay written in 2007 by Adi Bach, who writes, yes, this is a story about identity, but it is a very Japanese and peculiarly Kobo Abe-esque approach to the subject, where the identity sought is not only that of the individual and personal relationships, but at the same time, Time, that of the group slash family slash village in opposition to the greater society. Japanese identity is layered in that way. It comes in concentric circles. Later on, by the way, the essay adds some topical context for the film. It says, these issues, so vivid in the mid 1960s for Teshigahara and other filmmakers who faced the new phenomenon in post industrial Japan of ordinary people going missing, seemingly without provocation or foul play, never to be seen again, have lost none of their relevance today. For a nation of islands that was unified only by a police state that required a passport to travel from one region to another for nearly 300 years, where marriages are consummated after thorough detective agency investigation of family, health, education and professional records where even now an individual's new address is verified within days of a visit from the policeman from the corner kiosk, the impulse to drop out remains extremely powerful.
1: Right. So I much prefer that reading. Uh, it's making the case, you know, contra Arthur Schlesinger Jr's uh, I think very crude reading that the film is actually about freedom in some kind of way and in a way that is much less sinister than uh, than he was suggesting. You mentioned uh, earlier in the discussion that we don't learn the man's name until the the Very End of the Film. Now, The Very End of the Film features a shot of a, a legal document of some kind announcing his uh, disappearance without a trace. This is where we learn his name. You know, we hear more about his background, that he's a teacher, etc. I'm forgetting we may learn where exactly he was from, that kind of thing. And we learn about all these things precisely at the moment that they're no longer relevant, because he's he's vanished, he's disappeared. He's transcended uh, modern society's need for regimented categorization and officialization. Now, transcended for what and to what end, I think, is the much more difficult question to answer. And I don't think I really am able to answer it.
0: I guess the critics over the years who have kind of thrown up their hands and said it's a parable that can be, you know, everything and nothing are both wrong and right. I mean, as we've seen, it is a very culturally specific parable. But even so, it remains very slippery. And it's one that's spoken to people from around the world. There are some films that I feel
1: like, you know, I could be reasonably confident in offering some kind of, you know, if not definitive interpretation, you know, certainly very confident one. I don't feel like I can do this here. I think that the film's very subtle beauty and power comes from uh, its ambiguity. I know that I will definitely see it again. In fact, I think I'd like to watch it again sometime in the next year. And it may be that upon, uh, you know, a second viewing, I can find a little more clarity. Uh, But I suspect I won't. I think the endless mystery of this film is what makes it so intoxicating. Maybe upon second viewing, you know, the rope ladder will appear and I'll, you know, uh, (laughs) I'll climb out of the pit and I'll be able to get a better view. But like the man and woman in the dunes, uh, I think I'd like to remain in the pit for now.